0: Hey, Israel Story listeners, it's Mishi. So it's been 50 years since the Yom Kippur War, and as such, we want to share our Tel Saki project, which first came out in 2021. Over the course of two episodes, we go back to the horrors of the war, and specifically to one small hill in the southern Golan Heights, where, over the course of 36 hours, a group of young IDF soldiers went to hell, and back. Here is Telsaki Part 2, and may it be a calm and peaceful year for us all.
1: On that first night in Telsaki, I had a dream. In the dream, I am sitting inside the bunker. It's cold and somber, An overwhelming sadness pervades the darkness. All my friends are crying, Ronnie, he's crying the hardest of all. I am present, but no one can see me. I watch with them as my body is lowered into the freshly dug grave. Dirt is shoveled onto my rigid, warped form.
2: No one speaks. Only muffled sounds of tears are
1: heard, except for Ronnie. He sobs openly, without
0: shame. Hey, I'm Mishi Harman, and this is Israel Story. What we just heard was an excerpt from a print interview with Shlomo Vital, one of the soldiers at Telsaki. In our last episode, Telsaki Part 1, we told the story of one specific battle that took place on the Golan Heights during the opening days of the Yom Kippur War. If you haven't heard it yet, I strongly recommend you pause this episode and go listen to part one first. Because today we'll conclude our two-part series by returning to the soldiers after the battle and following their journey in the years since the war. As you might recall, we ended the previous episode on the morning of October 8th, 1973, when some two dozen tired and injured soldiers emerged from a hellish 36 hours inside a tiny bunker on Tilsaki.
3: It's like the war stops for for a second.
0: I could see only the sky, the blue sky.
3: Clear blue
0: and quiet. As the soldiers were evacuated to several different hospitals in the north of Israel, they had no idea what was going on in the rest of the country.
4: I knew it's a war only three days later in the hospital. When my girlfriend was sitting near me, read from the newspaper and said that the headlines are uh, the war continues in both fronts. And I said, what war? She said, where do you think you come from? I said, I don't know.
0: I never thought about it. Those who were physically able were quickly sent back to the front.
2: They gave us a break for a few days. Then our unit went down to uh, the Sinai.
0: On the ninth day of the war, an uncharacteristically jittery and nervous Moshe Dayan, then Israel's defense minister, addressed the nation on television.
2: In the
5: last 24 hours, we have notified the families of fallen soldiers missing persons, and prisoners of war.
0: Dayan, the champion of the Six-Day War, and a widely admired national war hero, moved uneasily in his chair.
5: We are in the midst of a war that is unlike our previous wars. It is very tough war, with intense and bitter clashes between air forces and ground troops.
0: He was sweating profusely, and speaking very slowly, carefully selecting each and every word.
2: This
0: is a long walk. And bloody one.
2: Since
5: we are still fighting, we cannot, I repeat, cannot afford to publicly express our grief for the lives lost. Instead, we need to keep on fighting, valiantly, bravely, and with the conviction of a nation that knows it is fighting for its life. We are fighting for our life.
0: Some 2,500 Israeli soldiers were killed during the war. But ultimately, that conviction Dayan had called for prevailed, and the Israeli counteroffensive was successful. By the final day of fighting, IDF troops were just a short drive from Damascus, and less than 60 miles from Cairo. Many historians regard the Yom Kippur War as Israel's most impressive military achievement. But in the court of public opinion, Israel had lost. The following April... Amid massive demonstrations, and despite being largely cleared of responsibility by the official committee investigating the war, Prime Minister Golda Meir
6: resigned. (laughs)
0: A new generation of leaders took over, and the country started its long process of healing. The
6: soldiers
0: who fought at Tilsaki had entered the war with youthful delusions of glory. When you're
3: soldiers, you want to do something, not to kill, but you want to do something.
4: I was uh, a little bit happy because since I came to the Golan, there was no fighting. And when you are 19, that's what you want to do. Not to shoot from your tank on barrels, but shooting at Syrian tanks.
0: Hallelujah! But those feelings quickly changed. At least 32 soldiers were killed on the Tel or else trying to reach it. But those who managed to come home returned to a different country, one in mourning, in a collective state of depression. Few stopped to acknowledge what these young men in their late teens and early twenties had gone through, or to thank them for their sacrifice. For years, many of these returning soldiers went around with a deep-seated sense of shame, regret, and pain. That is the story we'll be exploring today. But before we dive in, a word of warning, just like last time. This is a war story, a very difficult war story. And as such, certain topics and descriptions may be triggering for some people, and are probably not suitable for young children. Hey listeners, it's Mishi. This week, we released our 50th wartime diary. Next week is Yom Hazikaron and Yom Atzmaut. And as a way of marking this milestone, and these dates, Yochai Tal and I will have a series of onstage conversations in New York and Cleveland. We'll discuss the process of creating wartime diaries, talk about some of the challenges we've encountered, the dilemmas we've had, the insights we've gained, so if you want to hear what covering the evolving story of this war has been like for us, we'd love to see you at one of our events. All the details are on our site, IsraelStory.org. And meanwhile, wishing us all calm and peaceful days ahead. With that, here is Yochai Metal with Tel Saki, Part 2. At around
1: 11 a.m. on October 8, 1973, the prolonged hell of the remaining soldiers at Telsaki came to an end. Or so they thought. Two weeks later, Henry Kissinger, the American Secretary of State, brokered a ceasefire agreement that ended the war.
2: Hope that history may record one day that the initial step towards understanding, reconciliation, and peace in the Middle East began here at Kilometer 101.
1: As the soldiers were slowly discharged from the hospital or from their units, they returned home and tried to go on with their lives. You expect a group of soldiers that going together through such an event
5: to meet each Thursday in a bar, to take a beer and to talk.
1: Menachem Ansbacher, the commander of the Telsaki bunker.
5: No, Uh, the opposite, the exact opposite. We tried very politely not to meet each other. We just as a bomb. Every one of us was fragmented to another
1: direction. Some of the survivors, like paratrooper Dan El intentionally distanced themselves.
2: I made the decision that um, I have to get away from these pictures as far as I can. I live now in the U.S., in Florida.
1: While others chose to stay close. Moti Aviam, for instance, became a prominent archaeologist who has excavated numerous sites in the Golan. He told me that whenever he can, he likes to stop by the Tel.
4: I go there before sunset, and I sit there, and I know that this cement bunker is an important part of my life. As a matter of fact, there, in these two and a half days, I was shaped as a human being.
1: Another survivor, Itzhak Nagarkir, went even further. He moved to the Golan to live right near the Tel. For me, it's like home.
8: That's
1: why I moved here. And it is to his story that we turn next. As a matter of fact, we've already met Itzhak last time in one of the most dramatic moments in the bunker. After the grenade that killed Shlomi Pachima exploded and injured many of the soldiers, Menachem, the commander, yelled out into the darkness.
5: If anyone is alive, he should go out, surrender.
1: Itzhak, one of the tank soldiers, bravely volunteered and stepped outside the bunker.
4: We hear him shout, don't shoot, don't shoot, we surrender. The minute he went outside, we hear shooting. We understood, that the Syrians are not taking any prisoners. Nachem said they're going to slaughter us with knives. We will not let them. The
1: soldiers inside the bunker were sure Yitzhak had been gunned down. But
9: as you can see, I'm still alive and standing. I myself can't believe that I'm alive and breathing this country's air.
1: What Menachem and the rest of the soldiers inside didn't know was that it was Yitzhak's courage and resourcefulness that saved their lives. As per his request, Yitzhak told me his side of the story at Telsaki. It was a pleasant but windy summer afternoon, and we ended up talking for hours in the empty bunker. Which still stands on the hill to this day.
8: My
1: friends all say I'm a
8: masochist. Every morning
1: I drive by
9: the tail, and then after work on my way back home, I pass it again. You
10: know, these guys wake up every
1: morning in that bunker. Yakov Selevan, the historian of the one eighty eight armored brigade.
10: They go to sleep in that bunker. They celebrate, they mourn. They're all still on that hill.
1: During one of the darker moments in the bunker, as they were all huddled together, clutching live grenades and awaiting their inevitable end, Menachem, trying to keep his men's spirit alive, promised everyone that after the war, he would have them over.
5: In my parents' home in Jerusalem,
8: we'll
1: meet after the war, and he promised a big hafla. But after the war, no one was in the mood for a hafla anymore. Many of their friends had died and Yitzhak was missing in action.
4: When we came out of the bunker, his body was not there.
1: No one knew his fate. But about five months after the battle, a black and white picture, taken by a representative of the Red Cross in Damascus, had surfaced. In the photograph, a group of disheveled IDF soldiers was sitting on the ground, surrounded by armed Syrian guards. Their eyes looked vacant, hollow, Hopeless. But in Israel, this image was a cause for a celebration. It was the first documentation of living Israeli POWs held by Syria. In its attempt to identify the prisoners, the army circulated the photo to the families of the missing soldiers. Those lucky enough to spot their loved ones were relieved, if terrified, to see them alive. One of those lucky families were the Nagalkils, Yitzhak's family. The whole house lit up as they assured the IDF representatives that indeed they recognized Yitzhak in the picture. But it wasn't so simple. At the very same time, five other households also lit up as they identified the exact same person as their son. Once they learned of the other families, the Nagalkils weren't so certain anymore, that the man in the fuzzy picture was indeed their Yitzhak. I keep coming back to this moment in Yitzchak's story. An entire family crowded around a grainy photo, trying to recognize their son as if his life depended on it. When we met at the hill, Yitzchak started talking as soon as he got out of his car. We talked for many hours, not pausing once to sit down or have a drink. I barely interrupted him and was honestly overwhelmed as he recounted tales that reminded me of some of the goriest war films I have ever seen. 21-year-old Yitzhak had been a tank loader in the 188 Armored Brigade, which had held the line at the start of the war.
4: 188 Brigade was erased from the IDF force. The commander of the brigade, his deputy and four other officers were killed. Tzhak
1: recalled how, during the first night of the war, he was ordered to leave his tank and run over to a different IDF tank, one that had been hit, to retrieve their leftover ammunition.
9: And I didn't want to go into that tank. But all of a sudden, a Syrian shell flew right above my head. (laughs) So I dove in, closed the latch, and fell as if I was swimming in a goo of body parts.
1: I was just trampling on body parts everywhere. Yitzchak quickly collected as much unused ammunition as he possibly could. All the shells were full of blood. And went on fighting. I asked him whether those images still follow him. Yes, all the time. It's alive for me.
8: I'm post-traumatic, by the
1: way. Several hours later, his own tank was hit by an RPG, and his team leapt out, deserting it at the foot of Telsaki. Itzhak never wanted to go up the hill. He thought it was a better idea to try and make a run for it, and head towards the nearby Moshav of Ramat Magshimim, or the regional command at El Al. He even put up a bit of a fight with his commander. But ultimately, he begrudgingly complied. It's tempting to say that fate put him there, in that crowded bunker with Menachem and the rest of the men, and the Syrian grenade exploded.
8: I
9: was the only one left standing. All the others were lying on the ground, and then I heard Menachem Ansbacher say, guys, whoever can should go outside and tell the Syrians that we surrender. So who could go out? I was the only one who could even stand. There's no one else. Yitzchak dropped his Uzi. I left my
1: grenades on the
8: floor and went
1: out towards the Syrians. As soon as they saw him, one of the Syrian soldiers opened fire. Those were the shots the folks in the bunker had heard. But what they didn't know was that in a flash, he had ducked behind an APC parked right outside.
9: And when they stopped shooting, I picked out again. And the Syrian who had been shooting at me did this thing with his rifle. He pointed towards the entrance of the bunker as if he was asking, How many of you are in the bunker? Tzak answered instinctively. I sign with my fingers like this. Three are dead. Three was the only
1: number I knew in
8: Arabic.
1: And I'm the only one left alive. The Syrian soldiers apparently bought it. But other than his own fast reaction and quick wit, Yitzchak also had luck on his side. There was a morale-boosting custom in his 188 armored brigade that the soldiers in the leading platoon... It's called the sharpshooter tank got to wear pilot overalls instead of tank overalls.
10: It's bluish, there's room for an air conditioner tube, and it's much nicer.
1: And indeed, as they talked and signed to each other, the Syrian soldiers noticed that Yitzhak was wearing a flashy, grayish-blue Air Force overall.
9: <inaudible> the
8: Syrian
1: soldiers had specific <inaudible> orders to take
9: only pilots and intelligent soldiers into captivity.
8: <inaudible>
9: Israeli pilots are aces. You don't kill pilots.
1: Mistaken for a pilot, truck was led down the hill at gunpoint, with Syrian soldiers celebrating the valuable catch they had made. And they were all chanting, pilot, pilot,
10: pilot! They believe they got the ace. They're very proud of themselves.
1: He was quickly put on a jeep and whisked away. It was only then, en route to Damascus, that he realized that his ankle was shattered by a bullet and that he suffered multiple shrapnel wounds. What followed were months of interrogation and torture at the infamous Mize prison. I remember
9: interrogation stations with knives and electricity stations, a
1: water contraption, all kinds of torture mechanisms. The interrogators told Yitzhak that Syria had won the war and that Israel no longer existed. is gone. Akko is
9: gone, Beersheba is gone, Tel Aviv is gone, and I believed them, because I had seen it with my own eyes. I mean, I had seen the Syrians break through our defense lines, and I believed I no longer had a country.
1: That's it. Only weeks after he was captured, did the Syrians finally realize that Yitzhak wasn't the pilot they had thought he was but rather just a simple tank loader.
10: He's interrogated by a Syrian intelligence official who speaks Hebrew and he understands he got the wrong guy. And he says to him, he says, you're a lucky bastard and you're the biggest waste of gas in the history of the Syrian army.
1: After several months, the Syrian guards added a new POW into Yitzhak's cell. Yitzhak immediately recognized him. He had encountered him briefly during the battle that took place below Telsaki and had even helped dress his wounds.
8: The minute I saw
1: him, I immediately asked,
9: do you know what happened to the guys in the bunker on Tel
8: Don't ask, he
1: said. The Syrians blew up the bunker, and they all died. Itzhak's heart sank. He felt responsible for their deaths. If only he had surrendered in their name instead of lying that they were all dead. Perhaps his friends would have been taken into captivity with him. Their blood, he felt, was on his hands. Yitzhak had little hope of ever being released. And weirdly, that was a comforting thought for him. At least he wouldn't have to go home and face the consequences of his shameful actions. One day, during a visit from the Red Cross, a humanitarian aid worker noticed that the Syrian guards weren't paying attention and whispered to one of the prisoners that Israel still existed. The rumor quickly spread among the POWs, greatly lifting their spirits. But for Itzhak, this was not entirely good news. If I would return home, they'd put me in front of a firing squad.
9: For
8: sure.
9: Because of me, all my friends died. Dark thoughts filled his head. I had suicidal thoughts,
8: and
9: I was praying that there wouldn't be a prisoner swap. I prayed.
5: With respect to the prisoners of war, I conveyed the position of the uh, Israeli government to uh, President Assad.
1: But his prayers weren't answered. And also the Eight months after the war, the deal was struck, and along with 62 other Israeli POWs. Yitzhak was put on a plane to Israel. He sat at the very end of the plane, all the way in the back, so
9: that I would get off last, because I knew a firing squad or a military tribunal would be waiting for me. I knew that at best they'd take me straight to
8: jail. (laughs) Minister <laughs> of Security, Minister of Health, Minister
4: of Chiefs, and many many of the prisoners were sent to the station.
1: Yitzchak's family all came to ben Airport to greet their returning son.
8: As he
1: was hugging his family and kissing his girlfriend, another father stood by, silently watching. He had also seen the picture that circulated several months earlier and was still convinced that the man in the photo was his son. Now that he saw with his own eyes that he had, in fact, been wrong, that his son was not on the plane, the bereaved father stepped into the airport bathroom and shot himself in the head. Meanwhile, after being given a few moments to reunite with his friends and family, Yitzhak was indeed taken aside to an interrogation room.
9: There, the Israeli investigator said to me, you're an embarrassment to the state of Israel. We're ashamed of you. You shouldn't have come back like this with that stupid smile on your face. You betrayed us. You should have returned home in a coffin.
1: But despite all these hurtful accusations, the interrogator said nothing about the deaths that he had caused at Tilsaki. Instead, once he was done shaming him, he surprised Yitzhak by telling him he was free to go. As he was leaving the airport, a guy Itzhak did not recognize was outside waiting for him. The minute this guy saw me, he walked up to me and asked, Do you remember me? And I said no. The man introduced himself as Lazy Agassi, one of Menachem's soldiers at Telsaki. He told the stunned Itzhak that they were all alive, that they had all made it thanks to him.
9: We are all alive and waiting for you for that Hafle, that party that Menachem promised
1: us when we were all in the bunker. A few weeks later, Menachem and several of the other soldiers arranged a meet-up in Jerusalem. They even put an advert in the paper in an attempt to reach those they couldn't contact. With the return of our friend Yitzhak Nagarker
9: from captivity in Syria, all those who were stranded in the bunker on Tel Saki from the 6th to the 8th of October and all those who took part in the rescue attempts are requested to contact Menachem Ansvacher in Jerusalem or Moti Aviam in Hamadgan in order to prepare the
8: hafla.
1: In the end, only a handful of people showed up. Itzhak recalls somewhat bitterly that it was a milchek, or dairy event. There were these
8: cheeses. Well, but it was hafla!
1: As parties go, it was a somber event. They did their best to avoid eye contact or any meaningful conversation. And they weren't good small talkers either. So after spending some time together, munching on cheese and crackers, soaking in the awkward silences, they all went their separate ways.
4: After this meeting, there was no connection.
1: They each continued living, coping in solitude with the flashbacks, white nights, regrets, and longing. It would be another three decades till they'd all meet again.
4: 19 years old soldiers, hardly can speak on emotions. They they, they are feeling emotions, they love, they hate. It's very hard to talk, you have to be 30, 40 till your brain and heart are open to speak about emotions
0: between men. We'll be right back. you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. And now, back to Yochai Maital and the survivors of the Battle of Tilsaki.
1: Can you describe maybe a little bit what post-trauma is for you? How that manifested itself?
5: I think my wife could describe it better because she suffered from it. I don't think I, I was a bad husband or a bad father, but I was tough. I'm not a happy person.
3: Something changed me, my, my, my brain fucked up. I became unpleasant from a very uh, happy man, nice guy. I, became, uh, I never smiled, I never enjoyed myself really. For years I was very lonely because of it.
11: PTSD, as it is called, post-traumatic stress disorder, which is kind of a, a oxymoron because trauma is never post, it, it stays with you. If you say post-traumatic, it means as if the trauma is away and you are in the post-traumatic era. For those who have the PTSD, the trauma is with them, they carry it all the time. My name is Reuven Gall. I'm a psychologist Uh, at some point in my long career. I served as the chief psychologist of the IDF. This was between the years 1975 to 1982. In the Six-Day Wars, already as a reservist uh, officer, I took part in the battles in Jerusalem, served then as a company commander, lost four guys of my company. So I guess my experience in in combat-related aspects comes not only from articles and research, but uh, most of all from uh, personal experience. The Yom Kippur War created an earthquake. Until the Yom Kippur War, I mean, really nobody talked about uh, combat shock, shell shock, Helem Kav, as we call it in Hebrew, even if there were very few cases of Helem Kav, of uh, combat reactions, they were put aside and were not given too much of attention, A, because it was very non-normative, B, because it was against the glory and, uh, and all the great stories, and C, because there was not too much knowledge, professional knowledge.
1: But following the Yom Kippur War, that all changed. Suddenly, we were
11: faced with high numbers of combat reactions.
1: Woven told me that roughly a quarter, 25%, of the more than 7,000 IDF soldiers wounded in the war were classified as psychiatric casualties.
11: This was also the, the term used in Vietnam war, psychiatric casualties.
1: Estimates for Vietnam, by the way, are around 19%. But even that's startling statistic. Doesn't tell the whole story. After all, as broad as the term is, it only includes those who sought help. Menachem, along with many of the other soldiers from the Tel Saki bunker, weren't even counted in that figure, because for the most part, they did their best to block everything out. To lock it, to lock it, not to touch it, because <clears throat> it will hurt you. Don't touch. Don't keep away. They just got on with it. The life went on. They found jobs, got married, had children, and continued playing the role of macho Israeli men.
2: Almost like a facade. Something that you're not there. It's someone else there. And you're just playing the role of being alive, but you're really not alive.
3: You can get away from the war, but the war will never can get away from you.
1: Woven explained to me that PTSD has many manifestations.
11: It's a very... ...wide range of symptoms...
1: ...including... ...passivity, non-action. Menachem knows that feeling well. Except
5: two of my fallen soldier, I never visited any of the uh, home of the others. I just avoided it.
1: In Israel, it's practically an unspoken rule that the direct commander of a fallen soldier visit the bereaved family and tells them about their son or daughter's final moments... But following the war, Menachem felt paralyzed.
5: The family of Roni, the one who replaced me at the heavy machine gun. The mother expected me to come to her, to tell her the story, to explain, and I didn't. And she died from cancer later on. And they can't forgive me for that. And I fully understand them. It's too late, I missed the train.
11: That brings up another uh, symptom or another factor in in PTSD. Many times you find previous combatants who along with the PTSD uh, symptoms, they carry very strong and deep uh, guilt feelings, either because they feel that they were part of a failure, that they didn't function well,
5: or the unit didn't function well. The task of a commander is to go to battle and to come back after he won it with all his soldiers, with him. And first of all, I didn't want this battle. And second, most of my soldiers are dead now. And I'm alive. So it's, uh, it's hard to explain. Still too hard. I don't know what to say. All of us feel uh, kind of guilty
3: that we didn't uh, stand on our mission, that the Syrian army just uh, passed us.
11: Or many times, the simple case that I stayed alive while my friends around were killed.
2: Maybe I didn't stand quickly enough. Maybe I was, if I was more determined to stand up and insist to, to join, maybe Ronnie would still be alive.
11: That's enough to create uh, guilt feelings that have no rational base for that, of course, yet can be very powerful.
2: It's not logical, but it comes back all the time. Many
11: PTSD patients have difficulties in their family lives, in their social
3: lives. I made all the the mistake I could do with my older one. My older daughter ran away from me to New Zealand. So far, if you keep walking, you start to come back. <laughs> She couldn't stand me. The
11: most typical symptoms have troubles sleeping, have nightmares.
5: Even today, I have some white nights. I, I
9: barely sleep.
11: Depressions,
5: anxiety.
9: Till this day, when someone opens a metal door, I jump with fear.
11: Among the few factors that we know from research that can contribute to PTSD, uh, some have to do with the family structure or the family behavior in general.
1: Menachem's parents, for example, were both Holocaust survivors who never talked about their experiences.
5: Most probably they had PTSD as well, so I'm second generation of PTSD.
11: PTSD is is a syndrome is also affected very strongly by social acceptance, social non acceptance. It was completely unnormative, almost unlegitimate, to talk about anxieties, fears, especially among combatants. If you are a soldier, you are a brave soldier, you are a courageous soldier, you never cry. That was a kind of a slogan paratroopers never cry. And so, even those individuals who had those symptoms did all efforts possible to hide them.
1: As you may recall, our previous episode opened with the scene of Menachem breaking down into tears on his way home from seeing a war movie. I didn't recognize the voice, the sound of my cry. And I couldn't see the
5: road because of my tears. And then I had to to stop very uh, dramatically and put myself aside to free the way.
1: But while Menachem might have been surprised by this sudden and unexpected surge of emotions, his wife Dvora, who was sitting beside him, was not.
5: My wife kept telling me all the time that I have to go to a psychology treatment because no one can go through this kind of event without being wounded in his soul. And I thought she was wrong.
1: Following the incident on the ride home from the cinema, Menachem quietly contacted a therapist.
5: I haven't told anyone about that.
1: He kept it secret, even from his wife.
5: For a typical Israeli macho to go to a shrinker, it's, it's a shame.
1: For months, Menachem would walk into the clinic wearing dark sunglasses trying to fake the kind of confident body language that would suggest that he was one of the psychologists rather than a patient. His therapist had her work cut out for her.
5: I fought with her in the beginning and I had to rebuild and restructure everything that I know about my, about myself, about uh, therapy. And I discovered a very important thing along this way. Right. First of all, that my wife was right. That's a big discovery for me at that time. <laughs> I think mean, it's hard to accept. She was trying to let me understand that if I'm talking about something, it can change the story. And I was locked into the concept that facts are fact and cannot be changed. I began to realize that indeed talks can change. Even today it sounds strange to me, but I know that it worked.
1: After his weekly sessions, Menachem would go home and write down his thoughts and feelings in a notebook. After years of work and therapy, Menachem compiled these notes into a book in which he very intimately and openly exposed himself.
10: And he talks about wetting his bed at night. He talks about crying and falling apart, and depression.
1: Before publishing the book, He nervously handed the manuscript to his wife and kids. Yeah, it was
5: very challenging. When I showed the book to my family, I was sure that there is a good chance that the world will explode on me. Because they was growing under the impression that their father is a hero, is a tough guy. And then you have to tell them that I was sitting and crying like a small girl in front of a young lady, it was uh, unacceptable. And what was their reaction? They told me that it gave them a, a deeper layer on me. They
1: understand me more. Opening up to his family was a big step for Menachem. But the people he really wanted to talk to, the only ones who could truly understand him, were his former soldiers.
5: I still feel in charge, although so many years have passed. But still, I feel in charge, and I guess that they feel that I'm in charge as well. And they are looking at me as the commander still today.
1: It had been three decades since they all stepped out of that bunker. But as their commander, he still felt obligated to lead by example.
5: I feel that it's one of my duties to be there and to help. And uh, if the commander allow himself to receive a treatment from a psychologist, so maybe they need as well, and maybe they are allowed to do it as well. That was one of the major aims of the, of the book, to tell them you can go into it and maybe your life will be better.
1: In an email to his soldiers, he wrote, Like most of us, it took me time to understand myself, what I was going through. My physical wounds were treated in the hospital, but I hid my emotional ones from the world, and especially from myself. I worked hard at concealing them, afraid that like a dam, any small leak would bring everything down upon me. I made many mistakes during this period. As he pressed send, he prayed his message would resonate.
5: And indeed, in many cases, I think I I did open a door. The book is not talking
3: about what happened in the bunker, but it's talking because of the bunker. Obi's wife gave him a copy. She read me the the first sentence, which says, when he came to L, L never come out of you. And, And that's
1: broke me. He read the book in one sitting. And as soon as he was done, he started reading it again. He says it pushed him towards getting treatment himself. So you're saying the book really changed your life? Yeah. I think the book changed many people's lives. Many people. Meanwhile, an ocean away, Dan, who had moved to America and lost all touch with his former comrades, was going through a similar process. On one sleepless night in 2001, He decided to look Menachem up online, and found him on a pre-Facebook Israeli social media platform called Hevre Friends. Dan immediately messaged him. Menachem, do you remember me? To his astonishment, Menachem responded within seconds with a seven-digit number. Two one four eight seven eight seven. Dan's military ID number. They went back and forth, opening up to each other. They then reached out to some of the other soldiers from the bunker and arranged to meet up at Telsaki. Ten brothers in arms, now in their 50s, showed up. Dan flew in from the States. Their plan was... To go together to make coffee or tea, to bring some wine,
5: and to talk to each other. We spent there from 11 o'clock, we sit in the bunker,
3: till 9 o'clock in the evening. It was freezing and cold and dark outside.
1: It was the first time they had all gotten together since that awkward cheese party in 1974
5: it was very emotional that was the first time i was able to speak to the group of people i had to tell them how proud i am in them
4: expressing our deepest emotions about what happened who we are what happened here and um We we, we all felt that it is
3: good. We just look in the judge's other uh, eyes and we allowed ourselves to weep if
4: we needed. Ten men sitting together crying? Even in movies, they don't do it. I said, Well, there is something here that united
3: us and it's okay to talk about it.
1: The group decided to make it into a masoret, a custom.
4: We decided to meet at Telsaki twice a year.
1: Once on Yom Hazikaron, Israel's Memorial Day.
4: And the second one is on our birthday. And our birthday is the
11: second day after Yom Kippur. We do a memorial uh,
3: for our friends, and then we feast. When you see the white and the eyes of the devil over there, and you're coming back, it's, it's like burning again.
1: These meetings grew from small and intimate gatherings inside the bunker into what is today a huge affair with wives, children, grandchildren, and other guests. These survivors founded an NGO, erected a beautiful stone memorial on the hill, produced a documentary film, and continued to promote educational tours on the site. But more importantly, they found their way back to each other.
11: Apparently, one of the most important factors that keep soldier functioning and alive and healthy psychiatrically is the camaraderie, the, the group, the cohesion.
1: One year, Wubi's wife invited a psychologist to the gatherings at Telsaki. She thought it could be helpful for the guys to hear a professional talk about the effects of PTSD. The
3: guy came he was sitting between us and he saw the meeting and uh, and after an hour he said, listen guys, what you're doing is the best thing to do. I have nothing to say.
11: (laughs) As long as a soldier is with his unit, with his friends, with his comrades, you feel more safe, more supported, more protected. And even if you do suffer from all kinds of, I don't know, nightmares and depressions and so on, you get the support and the love and the friendship and the camaraderie from them and you, and you feel safe.
5: We are very close
2: friends. Those people are as close as close can be to
3: me as a human being. That's my friends, my best friends. Even if we met oh, twice a year, if you see us meeting, you don't believe that we didn't
4: meet for us here. Everyone who was there, and even, even the bunker himself, the cement itself, is part of my life.
3: It's amazing. It's amazing, yeah.
1: After one of their first gatherings in the bunker, Menachem sent an email to his Telsaki friends, trying to explain to them and ultimately to himself. That special connection had all felt after not seeing each other for decades. Every one of us is writing the book of his life, he wrote. We know our own book intimately and are familiar with all the details. We pour a lot of resources into writing it and know instinctively which chapters work, which don't work. Sometimes we get stuck thinking about what could have been, what should have been, but usually, our brain knows how to deal with itself and it enables us to just keep going forward. All of us Telsaki guys, our books all have one thing in common one page is ripped out and missing. The same page on the same day. That ripped page is spoiling the whole book. Because of it, our story never looks the way we want it to. We fight that damn ripped page all year round. We try to ignore it, to open the book on any page but that one. But when we're together, we notice that we all have the same ripped page. None of us have a normal book. And when we see that, we can all relax. We can simply let ourselves be torn together. When we stop upholding the facade that's when we find peace and friendship. And that's also when we can finally allow ourselves to feel the pain and let it show.
0: Yochai Metall produced, scored, and sound design this episode. Sela Weisblum created the mix. Thanks to our amazing team of dubbers, Dror Keren, Shaya Vivi, Shlomo Meital, and Boaz Dekel. Thanks also to Danal Magor, Sari Krieger, Abra Binowitz, and Haley Lerman, whose extensive interview and wonderful book, Crying for Ima, were central sources of information and quotes. We'll post links to her book, as well as to Menachem Ansbacher's memoir, Racism in on our site. Israelstory.org We'll also link to some of the songs and music you heard in our episode including the work of cellist Liat Saba Additional music in this episode was by Doug Maxwell and Yochai Metal. And finally as always, thanks to Esther Werdiger, Wayne Hoffman, Sheila Lambert, Erica Frederick Jeff Fag, and Joy Levitt. Israel Story is produced in partnership with Tablet Magazine our staff is Yochai Metal, Zev Levi, Joel Shupak, Yoshi Field, Skyler Inman, Marie Rude, Sharon Rapaport, and Rotem Tzin. Jeff Umbro from the Poglomerate is our marketing director. Clara Fug, Michael Vivier, and Alicia Vergara are wonderful production interns. i Harman, and we'll be back soon with the final Israel Story episode of the season. So till then, stay safe, Shalom, shalom, and
6: יאלה ביי. נפגשנו Ay ta troucha kazou kamo nishteru po bataba ya dati azotra khani ohe Shirini modet mishrikh hayatim kama ahbti lazam ram birgaim kashim Shirini modet mishrikh hayatim kama ahbti lazam ram Gaiim kashi, nivgas <tries> noshuv ot vozach lam meaz shishi mashepa, ot hachiyu, ot omarba, ot habatzok nugah. Echad zimer lo cheresir aldan ve'al Umisavi. מרים הליל מזעיף פנה וטבע דוגזו על הזר המתקרד שירי לי מולדת משירי חייפים כמה אהבתי לזמרם, ברגעים קשים נפגשנו יחד שוב בחבר'ה מ-67' היה קשה מה יש לומר היה עצוב בלב ידענו נתגבר פשוט עשינו ידנו זאת על עב כל הכאב הרגשנו זאת בכל ביקה כל תלולית בגבע נתנו להרגיש זאת Til ezamram pir ga'im kashim Shirili moledet mi shiraich hayafim Kama ahavtil ezamram kashim.
0: Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science?